we're verging on a topic that I actually wanted to bring up, which is what is the inherent or innate value of art? Ooh. Well, if we're going to talk about the value of art, we would probably have to talk about what art is. So this is probably something with many answers. Mm. But I think that for me, it's like a tool. It's a tool of understanding. Mm. I I don't know. I I think you said it was a a tool of empathy. And I think empathy is is a tool of understanding and learning and learning about others Mm -hmm. and myself, you know, but I don't really know. I like the idea of it being a tool of empathy. I think that's interesting. Because I think for me in my personal life anyway, my own art has served the purpose of capturing versions of myself I didn't mean to articulate. Like, yeah. do you ever read a journal that you've had from like 10 years ago or something and you're like, I didn't even know what a dumbass I was. Or like, Absolutely. I didn't know I was going through this. <laughs> right. And that wasn't what I wrote about, but it's in, in between. Like, if you just caught someone on the street and started talking to them and they told you more than they meant to tell you just from the way they talk or what Absolutely. they're talking about. I feel like there's an even grayer gray area when it's nonverbal. And yeah. I can look at my old work from when I was in high school or from college or whatever and see versions of me I didn't realize I was experiencing. And I think I can do that sometimes with other people's work as well, with a little bit of information about the person. Yeah. So. It's almost like how you ever, I don't know, do you guys have an experience of your parents when you were a child making a home video of you? And they said, oh, like, sing us the song, like, sing us the Christmas song for the video. And then you do some horrible two-year-old version of, like, a Christmas song. That never yeah. happened to me because we couldn't afford a camcorder. Right. <laughs> but you you as the child think that you're that you're being filmed singing a song, but they're actually capturing this moment and how you, cute and silly you were and how yeah. you thought this that this was singing, but you're just this like toothless child like yeah. babbling or something. Or and like it, your Facebook memories from 2012. <laughs> yeah, like time hop Facebook memory. Yeah. Interesting. I think one thing that kind of fucks up the way people think about what art is is how utilitarian it is because okay. there's the difference between craft and art that a lot of people talk about which is a difference that I don't necessarily agree with which is and there's there's a lot of of criticisms to of that dichotomy where people a lot of people are of the opinion that something that might traditionally be done by people of color or women yeah. or not like white intellectual men or people is a craft like, like fiber arts, fiber arts pottery. pottery oh i see that kind of craft yeah yeah like people will see that like a lot of people will feel like craft is a lesser thing okay and that has racial and and gender and gendered uh, implications but even aside from that it's also a lot of those for some re- reason or another has a utilitarian implication like there really isn't many things that are considered crafts that aren't utilitarian I don't. I don't know why that. I don't yeah. know if that has anything to do with with gender or race that I'm not seeing in this moment. But I think that kind of fucks up people's vision because I consider all of those things art. But well, it's funny too because after you put a couple thousand years on it, like this bowl from ancient Greece is art. This is in a museum. Yeah. Like, we don't know who made it, but we look up to it. We can tell a lot from the culture about it. But uh-huh. if you went to an art store right now and bought a bowl that somebody from like Hyannis made on the pottery wheel. It's right. like, okay, this is like 50 bucks. <laughs> right. And like the, the Greek bowl was some guy ate like lamb stew out of. Yeah. Like as he burned to death in Mount Vesuvius. Oh whatever. my God. But is it still art, even though it's not a thousand years old in the same way that like a fresh cave painting would have still been art, even though it was purely utilitarian maybe. Whoa, yeah, because the cave paintings probably, in in one way or another, were probably utilitarian. This is also an interesting point because what the fuck is utilitarian? Is psychology (laughs) utilitarian? It's it's helping us. Under it's a tool that we use to help our ourselves and our loved ones. That's a great question. But it's fucking like a some type of intellectual soft science. Mm -hmm. But it's at. (laughs) So it's kind of like even even that dichotomy or between utilitarian and whatever the opposite of it is just aesthetic appreciation or something or art that's used like religious artwork or something that's meant to depict something from the bible or depict a story that's long gone by that's also utilitarian yeah i was actually just going to say that too like that you know that's no less utilitarian than being a therapist is less being a job you know like it's art lets you access that part of yourself that's just as real of a tool 
I think those lines are just kind of convenient social mechanisms personally you know like when we deem something utilitarian it's just a way of saying like we don't have the balls to say that what you do is useless so we're gonna say we're gonna give you a little job and a little pat on the head you know and it's it's so easy to facilitate discrimination and prejudice that way mm -hmm. when you say yeah but look they're doing this thing and it's like that's i don't know that's always irked me too that it's a very backwards way kind of like slimy way to subjugate people yeah i agree with that Hmm. I think, yeah. So I think even with that being said, like, like, I think almost like a more interesting question is what is, what is the value of creativity? Because, you know, an ancient bowl from fucking some lost culture and civilization, it probably, they probably, it probably wasn't art. They probably made it yeah. so they could use a bowl. Yeah. You know, but well, like, Sorry, oh, go go ahead. Ahead. oh, yeah, I've actually lost my train of thought before. Well, I was going to yeah. say, to even flip the utilitarian thing on its head, like, I know from selling my own work that if I'm going to make a run of sweatshirts that are screen printed, those are going to sell. If I'm just doing an oil painting, that might stay on my shelf for two years. Mm. Like, I don't know, the value there, if you're looking at it from a monetary lens, the utilitarian item is usually more valuable, actually. That's true. And I also think that might have to do with with, with class, not just of you and, and the way we think about art, but also the class and, and financial state of, of of the of the audience as it's informed by the that kind of prejudice. Because That's I true. I feel like I'm more willing to spend more money on something that I can say, well, this is this is a tool, it's an investment, it's like yeah. This is like worth my my money, and I'm not some dumbass like buying like a <laughs> like an eighty dollar I don't know what whatever the fuck like yeah like so I sometimes justify purchases by really stretching and reaching to, yeah. <laughs> to prove that it's utilitarian. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I've totally done that. <laughs> I think this kind of also comes back to like the um the people who like promote to their friends and stuff like that in in kind of an abstract way because when the utility of creativity is to promote to like have something to promote or to have something to sell you know a t-shirt a sweatshirt whatever then like is that still creativity in a pure sense or is that creativity like I don't know. I guess does monetization like corrupt creativity as all at all is an interesting question to ask. Yeah, I, I think, think so. <laughs> I think that it definitely, yeah. it absolutely can. But I think that there, one an interesting art art movement to look at. I think in this conversation is the like early two thousands or two thousand tens graffiti and street art movement, which gave rise to like Banksy and oh. Shepard Fairey. And, like, you might, if you don't know who Shepard Fairey is, he's the Obey Hat, Andre the Giant guy. And those artists, they're, they're known for being these omnipresent, bold statement, big black, red text. Like, you know, it's like, in, in a sense, they look like advertisements. And these artists were making things intentionally uh, using and appropriating the composition of billboards and flyers mm -hmm. And, and things like that to and, and intentionally putting th these things guerrilla style into cities in places where flyers and advertisements and billboards would be. Mm. And one interesting thing is, is like a lot of those artists went on to become fucking millionaires and distributing tons of shit. So they kind of got it like the monetization fucks it up a little bit or kind of makes it hard to whatever. But one an, uh, essential part of their artist statement and why they were doing that was... The, they were taking spaces away from people monetizing their shit and putting fine art in those places. Mm. They were saying, like, fuck this Target ad. We're going to put a fucking painting here yeah. that we yeah. want to see. Yeah. And, like, and so, in essence, the distribution became part of the art almost as if it was a, a performance or a kind of form of activism where they were... Yeah. So the distribution was the art. And that's the thing with graffiti artists a lot, too. What makes you a graffiti artist is omnipresence. Mm. It's being fucking mm. everywhere. It's like you look at a dumpster in, in Waltham, you look at one in Plymouth, and there is your art. Yeah. Everywhere, yeah. you know? So I think that distribution can be confused sometimes as monetization. 
where there are some people that might look like they're just self-promoting, but part of their artistry might be, like, the omnipresence might be required by their mission. Huh. You know? I think the question is who your audience is. If you're making work for yourself or if you're working through an idea or a theory or if you're trying to accomplish an artistic goal and you're making money off of that, all power to you. But if you're making art for the sake of selling it, maybe you're making a product. Or if you're making art for the sake of having an audience. That's you know, like yeah, like if you're a singer songwriter, and you're writing a song in which you you've said all these things before, like it's nothing new. You're writing just another love song or something like that, but you're writing it because you have a following and you haven't released a new song in a while. Like, is that a necessary thing to do? Mm. You know, is there is there any inherent value in writing a song because songwriting is considered to be your craft? Or is there more value in trying to get something very substantive out of it? I, I think that's an interesting question. But one, th- one thing I would consider, too, is that production and performance is some people's craft. You know, like, sure, there are some like EDM artists I, who sometimes when I listen to their work, even if it features lyrics, I've noticed it might just be bullshit or like literally like there's no way it could be considered intentionally trying to say something i don't know i can't like i don't know like there's a lot of i've heard people call the music like tiktok pop music of right now be considered like hyper pop and a lot of those lyrics are like these like wacky bullshit like self-destructive like crazy things like and a lot of those i feel like i don't know i feel like for some of those artists the point isn't to the lyrics sometimes you know where sometimes the point is the production or the the artist or whatever the fuck i have no idea but well it's interesting because in that sense it's almost like it's comparable to performance art like maybe for somebody that's performing a piece the piece itself doesn't really matter like for example we've talked about this a million times but marina abramovic the artist is present that whole piece was her sitting in a dress at a table there wasn't really an art object the artist was the art object but the point was the experience and the person sitting across from you and that was powerful in and of itself but it wasn't something that you could replicate unless you were doing that act. Yeah, and it's interesting, yeah. too, because that, that evoked, like, people were, like, brought to tears during that. Because hmm. I don't know if you if you know about this, Joel, but the artist is present with this artist. I've listened to every episode of your podcast. I've talked about it so many times. We have talked about this piece a lot, but... <laughs> yeah, that was a good, a good, good time. Good shit, yeah. Good shit. Shouts out. That's just the easiest example, but I think that can be said about any performance art piece, that it could be similar to what you're saying about EDM, or, like, somebody that's performing for the sake of the show. Like, that isn't necessarily lesser. It's just that the art object, quote-unquote, would be the experience. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're paying for if you're buying tickets, right? Yeah, I mean, a a musical performance definitely is that. It's like, you know, what bothers me sometimes is when people say there's no such thing as new music. Like, Like, every chord progression has been done every song has been written already is just like variations on a theme from there on out, you know? And like, and that bothers me because I think that's a lack of creativity or like a lack of experimentation. Yeah. But if that's the case, stop fucking wasting music. <laughs> like that. <laughs> and like, that's kind of how I feel about this, like writing songs for the sake of being able to perform them. Well, like if you're going to be creating new music, make it, count you know make it substantive and like you're you're wasting opportunity for like good lyrics to be written and that's not for me to say because a lot of people would say like oh that's that's very gatekeepy of you joel and i agree (laughs) so like i'm not going i'm not like trying to be a dictator here but i can't help it it is actually how i feel like (laughs) yeah like, I just feel that if that's what you're going to, to say about music is that, like, nothing new is being done anymore, at least try. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think there's something really, I think that there's something to what you're saying, too, where I agree with you in the sense that, like, one thing not a lot of people know about modern art and modern abstract expressionism is a lot of people get mad at it and they're like, my kid could have done that or, like, oh my God. whatever, or, like, fucking, <laughs> you just threw paint at the thing. Like, but one thing not a lot of people realize is that those artists that did a lot of that work had so much credibility before that movement even happened mm. and a, a majority of them were already masterful draw, uh, artists 
painters, draftsmen, like they all could fucking draw. But the interesting part of it was that they were choosing not to. Yeah. Versus it's, it's, you know, it's really hard to take somebody seriously when you see them go up on a stage or assume this platform where you know that they're just a, a fucking joker. You know that they've never written a good song in their life. They don't make art. They don't know how to draw whatever. But they're just like, oh, it's abstract or it's punk or it's something. Like, if somebody had bad lyrics, it would be interesting if you knew that they had the full capacity to write good ones but they chose not to Mm. then it's an interesting choice but if they just had bad lyrics because they didn't know any better then it's like okay like what's the what's happening here yeah it's the difference between a conscious rejection of a norm and just not rising to the occasion yeah like and and not rising (laughs) to the occasion and just writing shit music and just writing some bullshit like thing that you you know that was made on an assembly line by you know that's i think that's whack you know and i think there are a lot of people that like punk rock diy or abstract art i think these are ideas and philosophies that are abused sometimes Mm -hmm. sure yeah you know what i mean where these are all valid and interesting things but there are people that jump in you know that i don't know it's a shortcut to some people which can be they're cutting a line almost yeah, and it's kind of unfair to the people that are consciously doing it. Like, the whole, like, my kid could do this. It's like, all right, but, I mean, does your kid have an understanding of the norms of art history and what a gallerist would expect and is defying those expectations, or is your kid three? <laughs> like, <Right>. <laughs> they're not the same. <laughs> or even simpler, why didn't your kid do this? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, it's art. There's no fucking rules. Like, your kid should either get up off his ass or... <laughs> Yeah, shit or get fucking lazy. Fucking Braxton. (laughs) In Norway, there is a arts council. It might be this way with a lot of countries whose governments are more involved in, like, cultural enrichment and stuff. But in Nor- I know in Norway there's an arts council, and they will kind of review the new um, books that are being published. And you can get a book published any way you want to in, in Norway. But if you publish a book and it is reviewed by the arts council and they determine that it has cultural value to Norway, they will make sure that there are copies of that book in every single library in the country. You know, huh. like it goes through a filter. It goes through like a um a vetting process. Uh, a vetting process. Yeah, thank you. I've always kind of liked that concept because it makes people try. You know, it's it's not like you might be less inclined to write just another mystery novel or just another Harlequin romance novel or something like that, <laughs> which like is fine for entertainment value but doesn't have literary value. So it goes through this vetting process and they'll make sure that you're sort of like you know, they don't pay you a huge salary for being an author that is determined to have cultural value, but they'll take care of you a little bit. And I've always envied that because it means that there's something to strive for. Or like in, in countries where if you want to make, um, I like this band called Musk Ox. They're an instrumental band from Canada. And on their album, on their liner notes, it'll say like this album was, uh, funding from this album came in part from the what's the capital the ottawa arts council or not the arts council but like the the ottawa ottawa arts society or something like they applied for a grant essentially to have this album made and it's like i appreciate things like that because then you're basically given the motivation to present your work or present you know a a treatment of your work and say this will have a certain amount of value not only to the country but just like to art as a whole and if they agree with you and again this sounds very gatekeepy but i'm a hundred percent like <laughs> in favor of this because it keeps people trying harder and it keeps people like trying to hit that mark and and improving and like i don't know but then like improving is very subjective as well yeah, I think that's a really a really fucking interesting thing, but I and I think one advantage that that has, I think you actually might have said the opposite of what I'm about to say, but I think okay. 
like I, I might have, I might be mistaken, but it seems like that one uh, advantage that they have is that something being culturally important to Norway is quantifiable. Like in the sense that we can identify something that is culturally valuable to American history, like the story of Harriet Tubman or the story right. of the Declaration of Independence, like Custer's Last Stand, like whatever. Like all there's a lot of stories, you know, Crazy Horse, Chief Red Cloud. There are things that are that are definitively important to know about. So I wonder too if like like I and I think we kind of we have a little a little bit of a version of that with the Library of Congress even where okay, yeah. they're not really the Library of Congress isn't distributing anything they're more of just like a, a a super important archive where it would probably be a fucking massive honor to like have like your your books like put in there like that'd be sick but it doesn't mean that they put it in libraries everywhere or something but but I guess in, sorry to cut you off in that instance too like you would have to discern between cultural importance and literary importance. Oh, gotcha. And I actually, I don't know that they only judge based on cultural importance. They might be looking at literary importance as well. But even that is fair. I, I feel like that would be fairly quantifiable. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Because literary importance doesn't also just have to be how dope something was, but can also be cultural, <laughs> you know, cultural impact. Like, if The Great Gatsby sucked and it still had the exact same impact and prestige that it has, it would probably still be culturally valuable. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, in terms of fine arts canon, that's a thing, too. Like, in terms of, like, the way that museums present art history, there are obviously tons of artists throughout history that have been left out. But, for example, a great one is Picasso was a dickhead, but cubism is important. Like, yeah. maybe yeah. the work itself isn't that impressive in a retrospective lens, but we wouldn't have abstraction without it. Right, but it fucking exploded. And that's another thing, too, that, that something that once was literary, like a literary bombshell and changed everything is a little bit different. Like, it's a little bit can become cliche in modern times. Like, if your band sounded exactly like Nirvana yeah, or you sound yeah. like Bob Dylan, like, you know... I th I think that maybe literary importance or literary mastery is probably just a really big, many many faced or multifaceted uh, thing. Because mm. I have been known, there are some books that I that I that I once loved that do not that do not hold up, <laughs> and that probably sucked. But I just thought they were awesome when I was like sixteen or something. Like what? Like John Green. Or something. Oh, sure. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't hate on John Green. Maybe he's fine. But no, go ahead and hate on John Green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely like loved like uh, you know any any like YA book influenced or stemming from the lineage of Catcher in the Rye yeah. type stuff. Yeah. Like I was, yeah. I I was the demographic. Like they were advertising to me the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> But do you think it's any different because it's up against kind of a more, for lack of a better term, like a proper genre like literature? Because like most people wouldn't think twice at just watching like a garbage TV show and knowing that it's garbage. But like it's cool. Like it's like I watched so many. I got fucking obsessed with Burn Notice for the longest time. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite shows of all time. But I would never say, oh, let's put that next to something like Spielberg did. Or something. <laughs> it's a completely different thing. But no one really cares because it's you know it's tv it's what you watch when you're sick or it's what you i don't know it's what you do when you get home from something but as soon as it becomes like literature or like a fine art or like a piece of like classic or classical anything it's like all of a sudden that bar gets a lot more important but i don't really know that it is in a ubiquitous sense or like something like twin peaks which is like known as one of the like fucking classics of of like film fucking like greatness you know what i mean yeah but i think mm. that one of the reasons that i think that you have to understand too that twin peaks was in in like the philosophy and and art art style of of like of a, it was absurdist it was an absurdism piece at times oh, totally. yeah. you know so it's obviously it wasn't that wacky by accident like mm. they didn't just fuck up and like do something terrible you know it's not necessarily like i wouldn't call twin peaks camp i guess is what i'm saying it's also interesting, like, in terms of canon, I think that it is a different kind of thing. Like, I wouldn't put any of those things up there as fine arts, but it is interesting to think about iconic pop culture things as 
art that defined a time period. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think there are examples, like, people talk about things like Mean Girls or Clueless or movies like that that yeah. definitely aren't, like, top-tier cinematic experiences, but they form a Yeah, don't hate on Clueless. Yeah. <laughs> Clueless is fucking really funny. All right, Clueless maybe is a little bit, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what I mean, though? Like, some of those, like, bubblegum pop kind of yeah. experiences <clears throat> really did have yeah. a big cultural impact. Like, I mean, to touch again on Breakfast Club or Sixteen Candles or shit like that definitely wasn't, like incredible at the time but was definitive of that time period and the pop culture of that time period and give it another hundred years and maybe we'll see what we think of it yeah that's why i kind of look at the classic shit as like it's just another genre in that sense you know it's like whatever people deem to be culturally relevant at the end of that culture's heyday it's like you know that's just kind of where the dust settled or the same way as like when something gets initiated into that sort of pantheon of like the classics that's just another genre so in a way like that type of gatekeeping and stuff is okay it's like it's like one of those um you know the gates when you drive by a farm yeah. and you see a gate on a driveway mm -hmm. but it's just field all around the gate huh that's kind of how i look at those gates it's like you build as many gates as you want there's still a hundred miles of cornfield on either side of that gate <laughs> i'll just build another fucking gate and do something else like it's that kind of thing you know so it's like I feel like some of these things they get sort of countered out by by what happened on average during that era or what the people really wanted cuz you're always gonna even if something's a classic there's always still going to be that book or that movie or that album that isn't a classic that just flips that switch for you and it means just as much oh, as the classic did to whatever group initiated it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like how it's like Soldier Boy and Guernica by Picasso. <laughs> Like, those two things are two separate pieces of art that had a massive impact and change on the art world they existed in. I don't think anyone's ever said that <laughs> in the world. But Guernica is not a masterful... It's a fucking amazing painting, but it isn't a masterful representation of, of painting technique, even though it's amazing. And, and yeah. Soldier Boy, tell him, also isn't. <laughs> May, I don't know. I'm not, like, a dance music, like... So, like I'm not like super passionate about dance music, so maybe there's somebody who who would, could really well defend Soldier Boy. Because, <laughs> but I don't know. Both of those things are 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 definitively classics. Or another great example, I'm sure everybody's heard in high school, like Shakespeare at the time was considered absolutely lewd. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Like, and look at that now. Interesting. I think a lot of these things also, not Shakespeare, I guess, but a lot of these narratives or ideas of what we consider to be highbrow art or lowbrow art has a lot to do with the money and social standing of the person who made it and the people that are willing to consume it. It has a lot to do with connections, race, gender, income, that kind of thing. Or the people who have a stake yeah. in promoting it. Or what it's about, it. target yeah. audience. Yeah, I think a lot of that is just kind of dissolvable bullshit that give it 200 years and people will think completely differently of it. That's true. They're definitely like something that me and me and Theo go to cemeteries all the time mm -hmm. and we will often research some of the people with interesting graves or something. Oh, dude, you got to come out here. Oh, to uh to the the western central western. You you, you got to come out to Lancaster. There's a place that's literally called the Old Settlers Cemetery. Oh, yeah. And yeah, all the gravestones are from like the 1700s, and uh, you would adore it. Yeah, no, that sounds fucking awesome. I'll, I would definitely add it to my list. Fuck yeah! But one thing that we that I that I see often is I will find somebody a grave that's like the most decadent and like fucking extravagant mausoleum with whatever, and then you research the guy, and it's like, you know, Chadwick fucking like Proctor was the richest man in, in New York City in 18. 52 and that is all we know <laughs> yeah and it's like okay this guy was an absolute fucking rich powerful guy at one point and now he's dead and has this decaying fucking crazy ass grave he mm -hmm. has no living relatives nobody knows who he is his money's gone he's lost to time yeah just like everybody else in the cemetery and i think that that is probably true with a lot of media too because like I don't know. It's kind of like if you've ever been to the, you know, the free bin of a record store and there's like a 8 billion like solo folk albums from the 60s. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I don't fucking know. I don't remember why why <laughs> I started this one. <laughs> where I went. But I guess I guess too that there are probably a lot of 
really culturally impactful things that of right now that may even fucking just be gone permanently just fucking not even be like you know there'd just be dusty free records of the future or to add on to that cemetery analogy how many of those huge monuments to this one guy who owned whatever fucking factory it's out of business right. now like has like q-tips yeah has like another little headstone next to it that's like wife <laughs> wife <laughs> baby it's <laughs> <laughs> like fuck them right yeah. <laughs> I see that so very often yeah, Very and if you awesome. think about that from an artistic lens, like, I don't know, maybe that person wasn't necessarily an artist, but that was a whole-ass person that probably also lived on that wealth and lived on that property and had yeah. something to do with that factory like me and, and lived for 50 years, but yeah. wife. <laughs> then can we be the slate of the grave that marks the troubled earth with our names and hides the light of the sky away Joel, you studied English, right? Or yeah. Oh, cool, cool. Just curious. I think I knew that about you, but I I realized I forgot it during this conversation, and it totally makes sense again. Yeah, it it makes it's on brand for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting too because like it feels like the studying English. I've always thought of like I've always felt a kind of like kinship with English majors or people who studied literature in some way as with with people who studied art. Or art history yeah. because mm-hmm. it's like you're learning a, a creative or whatever craft and a, and a lineage and history of that craft without being able to just join the workforce of 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 English yeah. <laughs> writers or something. <laughs> yeah, it's always felt very similar. It's an interesting field. Like, um, like of course, another purpose of art is the discourse around it, and there is an an inherent value to that. I believe in that you have to kind of exp- like it gives you a deeper way to explore the human condition if you choose to do so and you know one of the lessons that i had to learn cuz i dropped out of college for a while and when i dropped when i went back i had to be sure that it was like a conversation that i could have and prior to that i had felt such a clash between art and academia mm. and i always felt like i was above what i was studying in that i was creating I was making art very actively and felt like studying and academia was just getting in the way of that and I was on a certain path and I didn't want it impeded by you know these strictures that were imposed upon me you know by being in school so I decided to just not be in school for a while and when I went back I made sure that I was like all right I'm ready to have this conversation I'm ready to like contribute to art and academia at the same time by writing about it and by conversing about it in class and by like leading discussions that I thought were worth having about our understanding of humanity, you know? And I think that that's just as valuable as making art. I think that that's just as valuable as creating anything is like inspiring a discussion to go along with it, you know, about what did that mean to you? And that's one of the things that I think goes hand in hand with art being a survival imperative, a survival tool. And that definitely goes hand in hand with it being an empathy tool. Is that you then have to talk about how it affected you or what it made you realize about, you know, any real life experience that that you've had, you know, did it give you a sim- a feeling similar to that experience? Did it help you to recontextualize any experience or recontextualize what you knew about history or culture or any of that stuff? So I basically I, I had to realize that there was there's just as much value in that form of studying. Because I'll say that prior to that, I think I looked specifically for the pieces of literature that would inspire me to write better literature or like to give me the opportunity to see a lineage that I could potentially descend from. And separating that from just the inherent value of the discourse that surrounds, you know, that literature or that music or that or those paintings or whatever it may be, that's a completely different thing. And that I think is how you gain most of the enrichment that art is going to give you. Yeah. And that's, that's like a really interesting thing because when you, part of learning about philosophy or a concept is being able to discuss it. And like, it's almost like making a piece of art derivative of something you just studied is also another method of understanding that piece of art 
sure. and adding yeah. to or, or even adding to that conversation. I've never I've I've never really thought of it that in that uh, much of a direct way is that it it is actually a necessary part of deepening my understanding of whatever it is I just learned about or consumed, even if it is something that isn't meant to be that serious or if it's kind of silly or if it's whatever. Like I think, yeah, you can get that kind of experience big or small out of virtually anything. I think that's interesting too, calling back to the conversation we had about an hour ago about conversation as medium and the value of maybe running a podcast versus, I don't know, I guess input versus output, like really processing the things that you're thinking about and talking about them to other people who may have different insights or different experiences or absorbed it in a different way versus just putting your own content out there over and over and over again and putting your own stake on the subject. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's almost like Twitter where you're not even fucking engaging in any meaningful discourse. You're just firing off hot takes. Yeah. Or something. But if you're actually like, in like conversation a, with someone, yeah, there's an a push version. and pull. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Because you could, we could, I could, you know, fool myself and think that I'm on some type of podium, like, you know, sharing my, like, worldly views about art. But, like, <laughs> I'm actually learning and, and siphoning off you guys' worldly views about art. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I'll, like odds are I might repeat something one of you guys said to somebody else that doesn't know you at yeah. some point Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I'm learning right now and absorbing all of this you know and that's yeah. what you hope for though that's the benefit of like because I relate to that about um, leaving school and feeling like it was getting in the way of your work and I'm planning on going back because I feel like I miss those kinds of discussions I remember that hubris of being or hubris of being in a or high school or college and feeling like these are just me and my friends talking about this shit like I can do this in my house like fuck this oh, but yeah, right. <laughs> the purpose of a class and the reason that professor would facilitate class discussion is to get these conversations going and to be a, a facilitator for those discussions mm. and to kind of guide you in a direction where you're really engaging with the work and I think maybe podcasting is similar yeah and that's a really interesting thing because that education that classroom has a lot more to do with the learning than a lot of people would think like it's kind of like how it's really difficult to make art in in a not art space mm. like you can't just or like you know or making music in a place where just you're really not meant to be playing music like yeah. where it's like you can it doesn't matter but it can be awkward and stifling you know and that mm. classroom is kind of like a, a kind of like almost the way we construct churches where it's like we could worship anywhere, but this church is mm. this place where we have decided to put our phones away and dress in a, in a formal and, and intentional way and worship here, mm. you know, which is something humans have been doing for fucking forever. Yeah. You know, and learning, I think, really benefits from that same type of reverence and respect, even though I, too, don't I fucking didn't even graduate with any kind of degree and I hated school while I was there. But yeah, there, not the only way. There definitely is. Yeah, there. I think you're right, though, that I felt a similar way. Like, oh, I could fucking learn this on YouTube or something mm. like shit like that. But there definitely was a lot of I'm, I'm struggling to find the word or kind of magic and and reverence that I didn't have mm. that I should have had that I sh that I that I did not respect at the time I was there that I think I do now because Especially these days, you know, with everything, you know, the, this type of shit, like, you have to really try to have a conversation like this now. Yeah. Versus I've had millions of conversations like this that I did not, that I did not appreciate. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said, too, that when you derail that train yourself, like, when you start to want it again, or when you start to want it at all, because, I mean, you know, you spend your whole life in school to some extent, like, from the time you're conscious to, like, that time you're like, what the hell is this? So you really don't know much else until you sort of take a step back and do something else. I think there's immense value. Like, I mean, I might be biased too. I did the same exact thing <laughs> as what you guys did. And I'm back now, but it was like, it was, it is such a different feeling now. Like I was literally just like, I was that guy just dropping out of school back in the day for the exact same reasons, like just fucking off and just super kind of arrogant about it. Cause I felt like my work mattered or my whatever mattered and now looking back, it was just the first time I was aware that I had any of those faculties that I had seen my idols have. And not to the same degree, but, you know, like, you realize, like, hey, this guy wrote, I can write. And then it's like, well, why the hell am I not allowed to write? And then mm. I think you're, like, allowed and should be encouraged to play around with that fire a little mm. bit. Because when you come back to the table, you're going to actually say something. And every time I, like, regret, like, I was on a very different path for a little while when I was younger. And... 
I think about it now and I'm like, oh my God, I fucked up. Like, holy shit, <laughs> what the hell is wrong? And like, I just, my life would have been a-okay mm -hmm. if I had not done these things, you know, if I hadn't jumped off and dropped out and all that. But I also wouldn't have offered anything to those fields. Like I was going to be going in like a, a medicine kind of direction and it was, what the hell would I have been, you know? Why would I have given a shit? Yeah. What would I have brought to that table yeah. if I hadn't gone out into the world kind of like Candide style and, and found out what things were about. Well, my like go-to answer for a while when, when someone would ask me, when are you going to go back to school? My answer would be, I'm not ready to be a student again yet. Good answer. And in a way, like I always have been a student. I've always been interested in learning in the four years that I was a quote unquote college dropout. I was constantly going through phases where I would just watch endless documentaries on a certain topic and just absorb all the information that I could. But I think like there's a big difference between learning for the sake of learning or learning for the sake of your own personal interest and learning with someone else at the helm, especially someone else who's going to be like stewarding those discussions about art. And maybe you don't feel like you have the agency that you would like to take part in those discussions. And it can often really depend on on the professor that is at the helm. Because so, there are some professors, I won't harp too much on this, but like there are some professors in literature who will basically give you a lecture and give you a quiz based on what that lecture said. And that is the wrong way to teach literature. The right way to teach literature is to inspire discourse and is to inspire independent thought. So I always struggled with those kinds of teachers and... I was really lucky in that when I went back, I, first of all, like finally fucking felt like an adult <laughs> and like felt like I actually had the agency to, to lead discussions in my own way and to um, assert my individuality in a way. But I also got lucky in that like the last few classes that I had to take were led by professors that I did admire and, um, and really allowed for discourse in the way that I needed it. I think one thing too, uh, it's also to touch on something Matt said, being encouraged to play with that fire. I think that we, in like our in our modern time, enjoy a certain type of hedonism with creativity that a lot of previous generations and a lot of people in other disciplines don't get to have. And I think Absolutely. that that can that can fuck up our discipline. I think as creators, because like in fucking like Renaissance times or something, like if you're an apprentice to a Renaissance painter, you didn't get to paint. Like, you you were priming canvases. You did not speak unless fucking you were asked to. Like, you were, you were like a little servant that just aided this painter until you were ready to learn how to prime a canvas or to, to, to assemble a canvas or to, like, mix paints or to create paints. Like, there was so much you had to learn. And at that point, when you started painting, you weren't creating. You were doing copies of your master's works. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you were, you were a fucking employee, essentially. You were not a creator until you went through a rigid set of experiences that, that would then grant you this, this opportunity to do that. It's even like if you, if any of us, I don't know if any of you guys, I don't, I'm not like a, a boxer or something, but if we decided to all start, join a fucking boxing gym, whoever was in charge of us wouldn't just let us box each other <laughs> at all <laughs> because we didn't have the discipline or the experience or any of the knowledge that would ensure that we're not just going to try to clobber each other and hurt each other mm. or hurt ourselves. We would have to yeah. go through a rigorous amount of training in order to be allowed, to, trusted to do that. But that's not how it is with fucking art. Yeah. <laughs> but how much of it do you think was the scarcity of materials back then? That probably had a big part of it, especially in very older times because yeah. paints were made with like rare mind materials mm. you know and there was no fucking glue and shit like they were using like lambskin fucking like, like i don't know that's it was point. that's a that's a really in good point that that would be important to consider yeah. that you wouldn't be one you know wasting shit well because i was thinking about um like if you are an apprentice to a luthier you're not going to be building the first thousand guitars that you help to build or violins or what or whatever it is because the type of wood that they use is expensive wood and they don't want you to mess it up so like you're not even going to hold a chisel in your hands 
until you are experienced enough to do so. So it's going to start off with a lot of that apprenticeship type work. You know, you're going to be sweeping sawdust off the floor for a year. And there's nothing really wrong with that, I don't think, because like it's really valuable in that like sort of karate kid way to just like observe and like to gain wisdom in an apprenticeship when you're doing that. Like I remember when um, this is a different example, kind of like it's it's sort of where the two meet, like how, you know, nowadays in the art world, everything is hands on right from the beginning, which is a great way to learn. Um, but when I started writing for a newspaper in my early 20s, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't write on the newspaper staff at my college or anything. I just, I, I literally <laughs> wrote a letter to the editor saying, you know how there used to be serialized novels and newspapers? We should do that. And then <laughs> the editor called me and was like, we're not going to do that, but we do need a freelancer if you want to hop on. So I was like, okay, <laughs> fine. And I spent um, every Friday afternoon in his office listening to him give me notes on my writing because I was a fiction writer at the time and that was completely new to news reporting. But I spent every Friday in his office debriefing after that week's bunch of stories and he would give me notes on my writing and he would tell me how to do it better and I would just sit and listen and I became a much better news reporter just under his tutelage. And he also was not a trained journalist. Like he was a history major and had been a teacher for a little while and then took a job as an, as a newspaper editor. I don't know how he got it, but I think there's like an immense value and just like having a master to listen to. Mm. But that said, yeah, you have to, I guess that's the whole point though. It's like, if you start hands-on with no training, you can get really good just on your own at anything that you want. Um, Self-taught musicians can work that way, etc. But I think that at a certain point, if you want to become better, studying under somebody is never a bad idea. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, talking about how some disciplines put you on a fast track of learning an existing canon or existing... Like, if you were studying medicine, you would study biology first and there's no mm. subjective way to right, understand no that like there. yeah like you <laughs> have to know what you have to know in order to do what you need to do i think art especially contemporary art like talking about um working under a master in like the 1500s there was a canon there was an expected end product of something that would be worthy of mm. commissioning a commission from the pope or a depiction of jesus there's very delineated lines of what you need yeah, to yeah there was some shit yeah you're right yeah and nowadays something that's kind of amazing is that the art world has expanded in the way where we really individual it, we really value individual voices and individual forms of expression but I know in my experience I had some professors that were good professors like what you were saying about on um, a literature professor that would really kind of teach you to play with that fire kind of teach you to lean into your own creative output that sometimes if you're 18, 19, 20 can be okay. Well, fuck you. I can do this then. Like, yeah, I already have that. Like, why bye. We, why do we even go to college at this age? It's a fucking because the only way to fucking, I think one of the only, the key ingredients to fucking completing any program of any kind is fucking discipline. Yeah. And I don't think I developed any kind of meaningful discipline. And maybe I, maybe I did in the last couple years, <laughs> but I should, yeah. I'm 25 right now, but like I yeah. did not. Like when I was 17, I could barely paint a, a fucking anything, a still life. Yeah. And I was a, a fucking idiot. Yeah, and that's a, the absolute, thing. It was fucking stupid. Like, I think it's such a trope when people say, it is a trope because it's true, and I've experienced this too, of like, when I was in college, the professors I hated and I thought were wasting my time were the ones that really respected me and that I learned the most from. It's like, a professor that is teaching you something that is technically a subjective field is going to treat you as an equal but if you're not listening to them as if they are also an equal, you're not going to get what you're going to get from it. And if you're still prefrontal cortex underdeveloped, acting like an asshole, <laughs> maybe you'll drop out of school like I did. Yeah, like fucking me too. Yeah. Yeah, dude, because, like, they're, they're, it's that, that hubris yeah. and that, like, individuality that can be kind of accidentally kind of shooting yourself in the foot a little bit. I think a good professor will encourage that, though. Like, there must be something huh. really exciting about having a student that walks in like they own the fucking art world at 19. You know, maybe you're right, actually. Like, that must be so cool yeah. until they don't do their homework and they just drop out. <laughs> but they'll yeah. come back. If they're really in it, they'll come back. Well, I Or think, they'll find uh, another way. Because I did have some professors that literally were like, you, like, you are, 
It didn't like make me drop out, but they were like, "You're you are not what doing what you think you're doing." Yeah. Like you are not like rocking the minds of like <laughs> this like critique class, like this crit. Yeah. Like I did have some sit like and honestly, there were some sit downs I, I had with one professor where he would just be like, "Dude, like." Like fucking shut up, like and like and like I would be so mad or so, and it would even be hurtful or it would like fuck up my whole week. But like, yeah, uh, there's I don't know, man. There are some lessons that that are hard learned. Yeah, that mm-hmm. you can't fucking I don't know, man. There's well, just think, some shit you have to. You have yeah. Well, I think what you realize quickly is that that kind of um, reinforcement or like the entire class critique being like wow that's an amazing painting when you drop out of school and you're working 40 hours a week retail and you're doing oil paintings in your free time nobody cares <laughs> like mm. other artists will give you that feedback loop but if you remove yourself from those circles and think that you're going to dominate the world like you have to be connected to that kind of community in some way and in order to be connected to that community you have to kind of pay your dues yeah. and respect other people who also respect you and, yeah you can really <laughs> be line cutting too because I could paint something that could easily impress people that don't paint. Yeah. Just like how playing like a little guitar riff that's easy to play could impress any, you know, somebody that has never played an instrument before. Yeah, me. You know, yeah. <laughs> like that thinks that this easy three chord progression is impressive. Mm-hmm. So exiting, like, you know, like me, like I, I feel like a lot of people who like my work aren't artists. Like mm. painting wise, I don't know. Maybe that's just anecdotal and wrong. I have not done any research on this, but <laughs> I always, that's like maybe an insecurity thing where I don't think I'm an artist artist where I think people who are like really good at painting actually think I'm like not good at painting, but, pe- <laughs> but people who like don't know shit think I'm awesome. What I think is that it's subjective and mm. you really have to, in order to get the most out of your community and the most educationally out of your peers, you have to understand that you can learn something from everyone. Mm. Whether it's worth the price of tuition is a whole other conversation, but there's always value if you're willing to look for it, even if it's what not to do. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know that feeling when you're listening to a podcast and you really just want to, like, jump in? Oh, God, yeah. And talk to the person? I'm getting that right now (laughs) because it's like I'm listening to your podcast, but I can talk (laughs) to you, too. (laughs) Interesting. I kind of love it. And that's our show. Thank you to Brian and Theo for being wonderful guests and doing this crossover episode with us. They will be airing the unabridged version of this conversation on their channel, the Boston Art Podcast, so make sure to give that a listen and to check out their other episodes as well. As always, Black Market Therapy is a dead and mellow production, and you can stay up to date with us by following Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. We'll be back in two weeks with an episode about catastrophizing. Until then.